that happened uh, while I was at Sunset, uh, studying there, learning along with Ted. And I don't know if this was funny at the time, but I think maybe looking back, it, it would seem a little bit uh, humorous to Ted. We were in class one afternoon, and uh, it was a hot day, and uh, everybody was kind of somber and, and very serious. And someone came up to the door there, and Ted was, was teaching that class that day. I don't remember which class it was. But someone came up and told Ted that he'd just gotten a phone call that uh, his water heater at home had, had uh, sprung a leak, and his wife was hollering because she had water all over the carpet. And Ted Kell very quietly took he was recording the, the lecture there, and he took his microphone off from his uh, lapel, and he very quietly set it down, and he took out the door, and he ran down the hall. And we didn't see Ted Kell the rest of that day. He went home and took care of that, and I'm sure he didn't think that was very funny at the time, but Several things like that happened uh, while we were at Sunset. We had uh, one of our teachers got very sick and very weak, and he lost his voice kind of. And he had to teach uh, with a kind of a makeshift. Uh, maybe Jim Richards remembers that. He's sitting back there. Had a makeshift uh, microphone and a, a little speaker that was wired up to him, and, and that's the only way he could teach. And then we had another uh, instructor there that uh, seemed like every every time uh, every year, the same time of the year, he broke out in white spots. And uh, maybe Jim remembers that one, too. But uh, uh, they didn't stay home uh, when those things happened. They just did the best they could. And, of course, that uh, kind of inspired us with their dedication and uh, their willingness to, to go through whatever the, the cost and whatever the, uh, the sacrifice. I remember one thing that, uh, <clears throat> that Ted said that uh, I think sometimes it was more the little uh, sayings and the the little bits of wisdom that benefited me more than uh, than even the memorization and the, the lectures that we had. Uh, one of the things that Ted Kell said was uh, he looked at us one day very uh, candidly and very openly, and he said, I don't know uh, what path the Lord is going to lead you down. Uh, he said, I don't know how much suffering, how much pain the Lord has for you. And, you know, uh, I've used that quite a bit in discipleship classes and trying to help people uh, as I've taught and preached in the past. And I think that that's one of the big uh, things of, of following Christ that we must get down is that, as he has mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, the time will come when our faith will be tested. And the time will come when uh, all the fellowship in the world and all of the, the backing that you have won't suffice uh, for your trust in God. And uh, it's been true with, with my life and my life that, uh, that the path has not always been as I would have it, has not always been smooth. And uh, I remember those words. Uh, he said, God will go with you. He will see you through. And, of course, those are, are the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul also, that the Lord is uh, our helper and what can man uh, do to us if that be true. And that has really stuck with me, the fact that that God will see you through. He will go through with you on your journey, um, regardless of whether it's a, it's a smooth sail or whether it's a very interrupted uh, kind of life and service. I remember, <clears throat> Hilton, you probably shouldn't have asked me to do this because I can't just speak two or three minutes and quit. But I remember when we were studying in Psalms, of course, the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, and that Psalm says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or, seat, or sit in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. And I thought, you know, as I thought about something to say this morning, how that our prospering sometimes is not <laughs> as what the world would think in terms of prosper. We prosper in that we are saved, and we prosper in that God is with us. And I think that uh, that was one of the big lessons that I learned from Ted Kell, uh, is that God will see you through. Uh, God will help you when the times are tough. And if you'll meditate on God's Word, and if you'll make that your stay and your strength, then God will save you. God will bless you, and God will prosper. Thank you, Tim. Those meaningful words here. I do remember the water heater episode. We went through five water heaters in the 13 years we were in love. So I remember, but I remember that event, and I'm still trying to learn the lesson of the blessing of trials. I found that the course, the lessons I need to learn usually are in the, the required course, seldom in the electives, and the uh, tuition is usually much higher. But the lessons are more useful. John chapter 1, John deals with his trial and it relates to the person of our Lord. And so when the Pharisees come with their inquiry, they ask him, are you the Christ? What must that have meant to John to momentarily to have stood in the pulpit with every eye on him? To have been asked to be the winner on that occasion. For we cannot comprehend until we read and ponder the Old Testament and then read the abundant corroborating testimony concerning the hunger and the longing, the waiting for the coming of help. Socrates didn't know what lay beyond his death. Plato, with his philosophy, dealt with many things that people could perceive, but he didn't know the meaning of them. And all of the pagans buried their dead in hopelessness, as one epitaph said, eat, drink, die, come. So as the world waited for one to come, now the Pharisees come to John and he enjoys this prominence, everyone coming. He's speaking to scribes, Pharisees, soldiers, rich, poor alike, and his message is, get ready for the kingdom and they're hanging on his words, and many are responding to his words, and they say, you're the one. Think how many had tried to captivate the minds of people, and some had. Led them out in the wilderness to die as the false Christ. John confessed and denied him. He said, I'm not the one. I'm not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah? Remember Malachi in chapter 4 said that there would come one in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus would later. And he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The young demon-possessed lad with his desperate father begging for help. And the the apostles had been able to help. Jesus, on that occasion, speaks of John the baptizer. If you will believe he is that Elijah who was to come. And they wouldn't accept him. Even as Elijah the prophet was rejected by the people in the days of Ahab and the worship of Baal. But they're asking, are you the... Elijah that Malachi said would come? He said, no. Well, are you that prophet? And obviously has reference to Moses' 
promise in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, 15 centuries before, the Lord your God will raise you up, prophet like unto me of your brethren, and to him shall you hearken to all things. It shall come to pass, whosoever shall not hearken to my word, which that prophet shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Or as Peter quotes it in Acts 3, he shall be destroyed from among the people. Are you that prophet? John said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not that prophet. Well, who are you? Why do you baptize? He says, I'm a voice. I have one purpose, and my purpose is get ready for the Lord's Messiah. Get ready. He that cometh after me is mightier than I. I can't even carry his shoes. Well, John goes ahead then to explain his role and his purpose. And it's very similar to his concluding words that we'll note after lunch, Lord willing, in our reading of the third chapter of John's Gospel. When the last words we have from John the Baptist prior to his arrest and incarceration by Herod and his murder at the behest of that wicked adulteress Herodias. But his last words are very similar to these words. He says, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just the best man. I stand beside, I rejoice in his glory. And it tells us something in our desperate desire to be number one, to be achieved, to be noticed. It tells us something of the greatness of this man to whom Jesus paid tribute because of his testimony to Jesus. But then immediately following, we find in verse 29, the next day, if our conjecture was correct, then this would be Friday leading up to the beginning of the Sabbath at sundown on Friday. The next day, Jesus, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it bowed upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record, that this is the Son of God. The next day on a Friday, John with two of his disciples. Who were these disciples? Well, one of them were identified in the next paragraph as Andrew. I wonder if the other in his characteristic manner is not John the Apostle. John never identifies himself, speaks of that disciple whom Jesus loved, reclined upon his breast. But as you read the Gospel of John, everything you read has to come from the eyes of one who is there. Just the incidental little things as they were, which only an eyewitness would see. John will call attention to that when he speaks of the resurrection. This is he who saw, and we know his testimony is true. But in any event, here is John the Immerser, and here comes Jesus, perhaps from the wilderness, back into the area of Bethabara. Now, there's no indication that Jesus says anything to John on this occasion, that they spend any time together. But John, you see, has been reflecting for a month and a half on the momentous occasion of his last being with Jesus when he baptized him. It was on that occasion that the voice from heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit confirmed to him that his second cousin is the Son of the Eternal God. So as he sees Jesus, and knowing that the son of his influence, John's influence, 
is beginning to go past the zenith and is tending towards sunset. And his work now is tending toward its fruition and completion. John is not jealous. He fulfills the purpose for which he came. Preparing the way of the Lord, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What would that bring to the mind of the devout Jew? Instantly, what would it bring to his mind? What sacrifice? The first dramatic national sacrifice in which they offered his the Paschal Lamb. The chapter of Exodus gives the details of it. Evening of the 14th day of Abib or Nisan, the first beginning of months in the Jewish calendar year, they would take a lamb or a kid of the goats of the first year without blemish, kill that lamb or kid of the goats at sundown, roast that animal with fire, and eat that roasted animal with their family and their household, roasted with bitter herbs. The blood, of course, having on that first occasion been splashed upon the doorpost and the lintel. And as we sing the song echoing Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Josephus tells us that ordinarily about ten people would meet in a house and share that one lamb. They would leave nothing of it until the next day. So about ten would get together and consume that animal. Josephus tells us that during the Passover feast, one of the three annual feasts, succeeded 50 days later by Pentecost, and then in the fall of the year, the Feast of Ingathering Tabernacles, or Harvest, that during those feast days, when pilgrims came according to the law out of every nation under heaven, the population of Jerusalem would swell to upwards 3 million people. Now do a little quick arithmetic. At sundown on the 14th day of Nisan, with about 10 people to a household, slaying their Passover lamb, 3 million people. That's 300,000 bleeding lambs that night. Can you imagine the sound in Lubbock, Texas, if every house was cutting the throat of a lamb at sundown this afternoon? Can you imagine Josephus says the brook Kidron ran red with the blood of the Passover. That was every year, year by year, continually, as the Hebrew writer tells the chapter. Every morning, the first rays of sun, every evening, two animals were slain and burned upon the altar, burnt off, off the daily sacrifice. And that had been going on for 15 centuries. Four animals every day of every one of those years. Or 1500. Hebrew writer tells us it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats, hundreds of thousands of them, should take away sins. Let me be more direct. Do you have a dog at home? Poodle, German Shepherd, Border Collie, Dachshund, Beagle, whatever you have. You have a dog? Would you like this week to have portrayed everything that you've said, done, and thought that which you've neglected? I take it that our purpose is to honor God and try to do that. But I'm not proud of my life without fault this week. There are good things that I have been negligent to do. And there have been thoughts that I'm not proud of that come into my mind with which I've tried to do battle. We've got a black border collie in our backyard. We've had a running battle trying to make a man out of that pup that chewed up everything in the backyard. 
I've got electric wires around grapevines and a lot of other adjustments we've made to bear. But he's a good dog. As much as I try it otherwise, he has captured my heart the way your dog's captured yours. Now I go home, and because of some fault, some injury that I've done to Evelyn, I go out in the backyard and take my hunting knife and just cut his throat and pitch him over the dumpster after he's bled all over the backyard. And I go in, and Evelyn's supposed to hug my neck because that's solid. It's not the way it works. First, it would appear to be senseless brutality, and secondly, she would not be persuaded that the blood of that dog had changed a thing for the single thing I've done. Now let's return to the upper Jordan River, about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And here comes a 30-year-old man, and a great preacher points at him and says to two of his students, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. So on this occasion, John has said, I'm not the one, but he is. We've seen John denying he was the Christ, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and concludes with saying, the Lamb of God, all right, the next day, verse 35. Again, the next day after, Hilton, are we stopping 1130? Okay. Are you getting hungry? What do I remember about Ted Kill? I like food. And every day, right about this time, Ted would come into the classroom and begin describing what he had for breakfast or what he had for supper the evening before or what he was going to have for lunch that day. So we went out to eat last night. And Ted, we had a steak. And it was juicy. And as soon as we drove up to the place, the aroma just washed over us, cooked over a mesquite fire, browned and cooked just to perfection. And they brought out a, a great big baked potato, butter and sour cream just melting off the sides of it. Well, you get the picture. Nearly every day, about this time, you could just hear a groan coming up. <laughs> and it wasn't. You know, vocal, it was coming from our stomachs. I remember being impressed. Ted came into the college class that we were attending and began quoting scripture from the book of Revelation back and forth with, with Richard Rogers. And this went on for five or ten minutes. I remember being in the youth group at sunset. We read a devotional one evening at Sam Cox's. Ted and his family came in and and began singing to us. I stand here and look at this Bible. Have you changed Bibles ever? Have you looked at this Bible? Have you ever seen this? Right, can you see that? How do you? I don't see how he reads the Scripture. I remember, like Jerry said, you know the the little incidents about the the uh, water heater. But I remember the care and concern that he had for his for his home, for his family, for his wife. And I think back in the time that we were in Columbia, some of the troubles that we went through, remembering the way Ted handled problems. And I sought to pattern my life after him. Paul says, I want you to imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And that's what I remember about Ted. 
I remember Jim saying his memory work in Spanish and wishing that I could do that and many other great things. Let me digress for a moment. Uh, Jim, I remember the steak and cheese rolls and steam. We've had an interest in Asia for a number of years, and, and that's puerile. It's shallow because we're not qualified to serve in that capacity. But we had begun to make plans to go to Thailand with Parkland Donna back in the mid-50s. And with the injury at birth to our second son, which confronted us with some things that we didn't know the full extent of, why that changed our purposes. So we never really were able to accomplish that. But through the years, our interest from a distance has continued. And I've had occasion, I guess, four times to go into Thailand and work. The elders Brownwood now give me three weeks every other year to go to Asia if I can be useful. And I'm not a hero when I, I don't, you know, I can tell some interesting war stories like most people can. I've always gone with fear and trembling sincerely because I, I, I don't know that I am man enough to handle some of the circumstances which missionaries there deal with all the time. I don't think it's any big deal. It's just part of dealing with it. But it was that way with my going in and out. One of them was eating off the land up in very poor villages up country. I love that work. I love the deep, sincere faith of people in an Isan village where two young women are the only believers in the village where there is not even a Buddhist wat. It is so without religion, period. And that's incredible. But it means when you're out traveling 2,000 miles or more over a period of days, why you eat rice three times a day. You ought not to complain with that because it if they get rice once a day, why they, but I can get caught up on eating rice in a hurry. And when you are dreading the meal you're about to sit down to, and they'll always give you the biggest bowl, it'll be rice and some few weed, bamboo shoots or something. And you're sitting down dreading that because you're thinking, and in four or five hours, I'm going to be seeing another big bowl. And this goes on all week long. Sunday, we'd, we'd been on the move about 2,000 miles over some pretty rough country. Sunday, we got up four daylight, drove up through the mountains, way up close to Burma, Joe Bagby, some of you will remember in the eye, to the little village of Prowl, to Ma Cal's house for breakfast, rice. They were grateful. I remember Abe saying, some food you offer thanks for and others you ask a blessing upon. And I had long since begun to ask the Lord to please bless this rice. And we had it for breakfast, had a, a moving, meaningful worship service in a little village church building. Just, it was a beautiful morning. They, of course, they, out front they met early and they're just sitting down on their haunches as is their custom and visiting, just enjoying their life, common life in Christ. We went back at lunch, waiting for the ladies to bring the rice. I said, Joe, you know what they're cooking back in the kitchen, which means outside over the little charcoal. He said, what? I said, they've just taken a pot roast out, big old onion, just squatted down on top of it, and the potatoes and the carrots are smothered, and they're thickening the gravy, and the cheese rolls are rising in the oven. No Bagby said, shut your mouth. <laughs> so years don't change some things, Jim. I must add... Uh, to be honest, that as we came back out of those mountains, I saw a plaintive young woman in the 
striking hill country attire. Struggling up a steep mountain road and then up the side of the mountain, just a twisting little snake trail. Wee up on top of the mountain. It looked like it was a mile and a half up there. Just You could just see silhouette in a little old shack up there. And I was hoping that that was not her home. Don't know whether it was or not. But she was leading a little girl about five years old. And she had a rack on her back stacked with wood that probably they would burn and make a charcoal out of for just a few baht of money. And just the empty, it wasn't complaining, but just the empty, hopeless look in her eyes, she started up. Because her life that day had one struggle, and that was to get a meal together for her family, one meal. And as we passed, I looked at Joe, and he looked at me, and we said, Father, forgive me. In the name of him of whom we studied, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. Again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. The common people heard him gladly, Mark 14, verse 37. They hung on his words. He didn't teach them as the scribes and the Pharisees with all their trappings and, and their artificiality and, and the emptiness and their pompous authority laying heavy burdens on their shoulders but wouldn't touch them with one of their fingers. Jesus talked about life. He lived it, cared. He knew. He spoke with authority. They hung on his words. And the Jews were angry in the power structure of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees kept hedging in and, and finally stirring up the multitudes to kill him. Why? Because they were losing their disciples. Not John. Behold the Lamb of God. His two disciples turned to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say come. He doesn't say follow me. But there's something about him that as they see him as the Lamb of God means, he's the one to follow. We follow him today because he is that Lamb of God. Jesus turned and he asked them the question that is appropriate and it helps me when I'm talking to a person there in Brownwood and I want them to see Jesus, the Lamb of God. As I ask a man this week, where do you see yourself five years from now? He's left his wife. He's living in a moral relationship with another woman. He said he was unhappy. Didn't know for sure, but he hoped that God would understand. He was unhappy. He was trying to make do now. You know, all the ways that we justify going down the wrong trail. We know. I said, where do you see yourself five years from now? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? And on this occasion, Jesus turned to these two and he said, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? Well, I like steaks, boil over mesquite. I like pot roast. And I am grateful when I see the poorness of those whose lot is hard in life. I'm grateful for rice. But man doesn't live by bread alone. I'm not just looking for food. I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for life. 
And that's what these two are. And that's the reason that the psalmist writes graphically in the 106th Psalm, I believe it is, verse 15. He gave them their desire but sent leanness into their soul. Any person in Lubbock went out last night and parted. Christ on Friday night. Thank goodness it's Friday. They misuse God's name to justify their efforts. And this morning are wondering where they went, what they did, and why trying to feel good has left them feel so miserable this morning. Jesus says to mankind, to us, what he said to those disciples. What are you looking for? And they said, Master, Rabbi, where do you live? In a sense, isn't that what we ask of Jesus? Where would you come from? Who are you? Could I just get close to you? Is there some way that, that I could just go where you go and see who you are and, and just learn and draw and drink and come and see? I think in a practical way, let me digress for a moment. I think this is one of the great, generally in our society, unused opportunities that we have to bring people to Christ. Let me encourage again, you ladies, to be the hands and hearts of Jesus and, and to do the necessary tasks so that tomorrow you can have somebody in your home for Jesus. I don't mean take them down to steak and pay red lobster for it. And that's all. But when we invite somebody into our home, we invite them because we want, because we're willing for them to see how we live and what our early Halloween furniture may or may not look like. How our kids behave or misbehave. We invite them because we are comfortable with their being close to us. And we've lost sight of them. That especially is true of my observations, I think, in Browning. I used to say I didn't know any city where people ate out as much as in Lubbock. But I hadn't lived in Browning. And there are many dear, beloved servants of God who have honored God in so many ways in so many years. But one of our pervading weaknesses... I believe, is we don't have many people who really just say, come home with you. Come home with you. That's what Jesus says to all men. Come home with you. You're lonely. You're desperate. You're looking. Come and see. Well, they went and they abode with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Interesting thing that you can do your own study. Edersheim will give you some interesting thoughts. John's gospel very likely uses the Roman reckoning of time and not the Jewish reckoning. This would indicate such. If it were the Jewish reckoning time, 10 o'clock would be what? What? 4 o'clock. That's what I've got written here. See, some of, how do, how do I read this? I just remember the difference between the reading and the writing. The reading came from God. The writing, sometimes I have to get that, that whiteout stuff. And I, that's, that's some of my earlier study that, that I think probably needs to be correct. For example, they spent the day with him. Probably wouldn't say that at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And when it deals with the, resur- with the crucifixion of Christ, the sixth hour of the day, and you try to harmonize John's time reckoning with the others from the Jewish time schedule. So do some homework, but I'm just going to affirm that John uses the Roman reckoning, which is out at midnight. 10th hour of the day, 10 o'clock in the morning, and they spent the day. Notice the Sabbath day. I don't mean, I'm not going to say anymore. You you know I understand the, the paucity of evidence other than what I've suggested. I'm not going to say any more about the conjecture. But it's interesting to ponder this being the Sabbath day on that basis. It would be a day of quietness and think what that meant. 
to Andrew and the unnamed disciple who may have been John. So Andrew first find it. Does it mean that the first thing he did was to find his brother? Yeah, I think I think he did the first thing he did when he left Jesus' house is went and found his brother. But does that mean he first, as the other disciple, also went and got his brother? Well, that's an interesting. John may well have gone and found James and said, we have found. To me, that's one of the favorite statements in Scripture. I, I love children. Better because it's Evan wouldn't stop having babies. We had five the last time I counted. But I love children, and, and for many reasons. One reason is a little child, he likes what he likes, and he doesn't like what he doesn't. And I figure if I can get along with children, like you grown folks, every Sunday night I have a few backers class down in front. Every time I hold a meeting, I have a little class. And I used to call it Andrew class. I made up a little song. I want to be like Andrew and find my brother. That's what I'll do. I want to be like Andrew and bring my brother to God and bring my brother to God. And that's what Andrew did. But notice what he said. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said, what did he say? Who's found the Messiah? I. You want to take a vote on it? Voting won't change it, but that's to do with the life and godliness, the word of God. Well, I have to read the book. We have found the Messiah whom Moses wrote in the law. No, Andrew, you have found him. No, Simon. The Messiah is the one who alone can help us. We have He's too good to keep. You know, as we get better acquainted with Jesus, we begin to see in him the fullness of life, the hope of life. Then we begin to see people in a different way. We have an Adventures in Evangelism class, Brownwood. It's a spinoff of Ron Willingham's Adventures in Christian Living class. have shared. Harold Durham <clears throat> served in the gospel in Fort Stockton. In a very fine way, it has adapted that approach to sharing the gospel. And it's interesting to hear the 10 or 15 that are in the class right now, and we're just completing a six-month study. It's interesting to hear them say to others what they thought the class was going to be and what it has turned out to be. I tried to warn them. I said, I'm going to talk. First session, I will lecture, and that will be the last time you're going to conduct the classroom now. And they listen to a tape every day. Then it has a specific activity, action objective during the week, which they are to do. And then they have two and a half minutes at every class meeting. They tell what they did and what the reaction was and what they learned from it. And what they've been saying is, we thought, you know, he was going to give us a list of scriptures and going to give us outlines and, and, and said, man, we've wound up looking ourselves for six months. But as they have looked at themselves, they've begun to see themselves as people who know the Messiah and they don't look at other people the same. They've always known that somebody ought to share the Messiah with others. But now they are aware we have found the Messiah. So Billy Gill is, is bringing her co-teacher from the sixth grade elementary school to church with Mark Miller, probation officer, had an alcoholic that is working with him in probation at him at church. They are beginning to get into the lives. I have found that talking about personal work, you can give a bunch of names and dresses out, but that doesn't make of me one who has come to know the Messiah. And I realize that Simon doesn't know the Messiah. And I say, look what we have found. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, Simon, you're the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called a stone. Cephas, which by interpretation is a stone. I'm glad that Jesus 
can see where he's headed in my life. Because there have been times when I have been so distraught and dismayed with my failures and inabilities that I would have given up. And you, and think of, of all the episodes. I mean, Peter does not become a disciple of Jesus at this point. At least he, he is not numbered among the twelve until several months later. That will come in our next walk with Jesus God. So at this point, Peter, with all of that, that explosiveness, that, that high and that low and, and those mistakes, Jesus said, Peter, up yonder, you're going to be a star. Thank God that Peter listened when Jesus said that and trusted God's promise. And that tells me that when God says, Ted, I can use you. You're a jar of clay. The important thing is what's in the jar, not, not the container, but flowers still are enhanced by being placed in a container. And I put a, a priceless messianic treasure in your clay jar. I can use you. So on that Sabbath day, in the quietness of that day, Jesus becomes acquainted with Simon Peter. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. So evidently he is leaving Bethabara and the Jordan to go back to Nazareth, uh, his early home. And he findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. He didn't say, here's your memory work. He didn't say, here's your test. He didn't say, point number one. Jesus said, as we could best say to our friends, I hope you can see the difference that Jesus has made. There are things that we must help a person learn of Jesus. But all of that must be etched in the context of one as Ted who would say to you, I really believe in Jesus. I'll do my best to be the kind of example that you can follow. And I'll try to be an example of how to deal with failure because I will fail. But I'm trying to follow Jesus. The point is that teachers are not just talkers. The scribes and Pharisees were. Notice the teacher as he speaks to Philip and says, follow me. And what we've been saying of one another and could multiply the list is the teachers from whom we learn the most were not the teachers who taught us all the information whose lives we may have despised or lost confidence in. But it's the Jesus who says, watch let me show you the difference. Now, Philip was a Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathaniel. Do you remember Nathaniel's hometown? Chapter 21, verse 2 of the Gospel of John will tell us he was of Cana. That's of interest because of the time that Jesus was spending in Cana. Philip findeth Nathaniel. I did not know in my ignorance that continued until early this morning when I was up doing some reading. Nathaniel is the same as Theodore. I have sort of invested the interest in the meaning of Theodore, Thales, Dor, the gift of God. So I bear this man's name as the gift of my parents, but it means gift of God. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no God. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? 
thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the king of Israel, the son of God. Nathaniel has confessed Jesus as the king divine. Jesus said, Come as a man. I am God in the flesh to bring you back to God. An Israelite in whom is no guile. Who was the first Israelite? Who was it? Well, Jacob. Abraham, indeed, the father of the race. But it was Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Foot grabber. Holding the foot of his older brother when Esau was delivered. The hairy one. Names always signify character. Foot grabber. I'll trip you. I'll run ahead. Jacob, crooked as a snake, living by his words. He could cheat and lie with the best of them, even with his father, with his mother's help, fooling a blind father and, and bringing God into it. How'd you, how'd you kill that deer so soon, Jacob? God helped me. Then he goes, and you remember, he's deceived by a father-in-law and says, Thou hast deceived me. Takes one to know one. In 20 years he serves, is blessed with two wives and two handmaidens and 12 sons and a daughter returns, word comes, here comes Esau with 400 men. And the last words that Jacob had heard from his brother were what? I'll kill you. And that night, Brother Brook Pinion, Jacob lost his guy. He did like I've done when Mama still had questions when I had run out of answers when I was alive. Jacob, on that moment of truth, wrestling with the angel, finally says, God help me! Angel says, turn me loose. Turn me loose. No, help. Bless me. Help me. I'm going to call you foot grabber, liar, cheat, deceiver, live by you, slippery. I'm not going to call you that anymore. You've been that. But you finally learn. It comes a moment of truth in your life and you can't make it on your own. He who now strives in the strength that God provides. Then the angel touched his hip. The Bible says, Jacob, limp. Hit, hurt him, gave way, reminded him, can't live with God, can't live with the sea. One of the hardest things for us to do is to come to an honest, face-to-face encounter with Jesus in a meaningful way, not the kind that we stand up and testify about, the kind of which we become transparent and honest and open. Daniel did, and Jesus said, you don't see greater things than the Son of Man. One more thought, and I'll wait till after lunch to develop that. This morning, we've tried to come face-to-face with